The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This episode of See Here is brought to you by the memory of the maestro, Carl Stalling. Episode 45, and we've got a corker of a one for you. Before I talk about that, let me introduce to my learned musicians and compadres in film, first of all, Mr. Bernard Stickwell and Bath. Hello. And in Seoul, South Korea, Mr. Tim Merrill. Howdy. We have an interview. Now, this is the second month in a row that we've gone for an interview. We might have to make this a regular thing or change the notion of our show. We have on the program a fellow called Matt Schrader. Now, Matt is the director of a new film called Score a film music documentary a really really interesting film if you want to go check this film out it's the first documentary ever amazingly about the art of music composition for film you would have thought that this would have been done dozens of times but it looks like matt has beat everyone to the punch in 2017 holy moly so it's a really really interesting film and matt has a lot of fascinating things to say about his film and about the art of music composition for film in general the history of composers and who his favorites are so we're going to go to a quick break play the trailer and then we'll be back to speak with matt schrader you're listening to c here episode 45 okay. I like that it, it, it seems like a very natural transition yeah. let's see if we can do it music is the one thing that we all understand that we don't understand music has tremendous driving power within the narrative of any film Bond James Bond the visual is one thing. When you add music, it becomes something else. It's a whole different experience. The score is the heartbeat of the film. So much of it is felt. It's all about intuition. You realize this power we wield. You can make you feel anything we want you to feel. John Williams made me realize film music can be as great as the classical composer. Thomas Newman, his music is just so eloquent. Hans Zimmer revolutionized what we do. We have to go shake it up. We have to go and reinvent. For months and months, it really feels like you're going to fail. Proving yourself is a great force. There is 
a chemical high. Pirates, it's like Led Zeppelin played by an orchestra. What can the audience really feel? It doesn't matter how you get that. It's whether it's got substance. Standing on the podium and hearing it for the first time. I guess it's like seeing your child for the first time being born. Film music is the symphonic music of today. How do you make the audience feel like they're coming home? Your mind is connecting those dots. Film music has changed fairly radically. There's sort of a new renaissance going on. It's so visceral. It's incredibly powerful. You can't say enough about how exciting that is. episode 45 of the See Here podcast and the three of us are extremely excited because on the other end of a Skype connection we have a film director. We don't often get those but once in a blue moon we do and this time around we have the director of a new documentary that's come out called Score and the director of the said film is one Matt Schrader. Matt, good afternoon. I believe it's afternoon for you, isn't it? It is. It is. Just barely. Yeah. Good evening to you and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. First of all, congratulations on the release of your film. Is it to the best of your knowledge that the first time that there's been a documentary that focuses on the art of film composition? Isn't that kind of crazy? You would think we have a hundred years of music that has been used in film. It seems like there should have been a documentary on this sooner. And that was kind of some of the thought process that I had a few years ago. I was sure that someone was going to make this. At some point, I'm sure someone would have made it, but it turned out that person was me. So we realized if we could get some access to some of the film composers working today, some big name people. You know, if, if we could get Hans Zimmer to let us into a studio, there's a good chance that we could make a full feature documentary happen on the art of film scoring. And that's why we gained a little bit of momentum and things kind of took off for us. So I wanted to know, what was your original motivation when you decided that you were going to make this film? There's a lot about the process of a composer towards how the various composers who you spoke to, what they go into when they're actually writing a score. But did you want to present something about the history? What was your actual original intention? Or did you just come up with hundreds of hours of footage and decide to assemble it then? The great thing is this is an area that I feel like is so uncovered by media, by press. We don't hear that much about it, but it's a really cool, creative world. There's not that many art forms like that that affect potentially billions of people all around the planet. And yet there's not really that much discussion or analysis or appreciation. It seems like a lot of the the film score super fans, that was a relatively small group of people in number. But then there's a lot of people that listen to film scores at the gym or they consider themselves film score listeners, but maybe not the super fan. And we realized that that is a huge audience right there of people who are interested in this field, but they know nothing about it. Absolutely nothing. So we kind of had to straddle a line between putting together something that a lot of those kind of film score fans would enjoy that had a little bit of depth to it and also kind of balanced that with people that had never, you know, they just thought that someone pressed a button and a bunch of violins come out of the speakers. You know, that, that was their thought about how a film score gets made. We wanted to try to be a primer for the rest of this film music world. And in a way, I kind of think that our movie, what I consider the biggest flaw of the documentary that we put together is that we're skimming the surface of so much these waters that are so deep. You know, you can go pretty deep on a lot of individual scores in particular, but it was really fun to be able to kind of skip over, you know, and kind of have a highlight reel of all of these, not only the great moments in scores from the past, but also a primer in how a film composer goes about creating a score. When 
when you constructed the film, did you ever have the idea of the possibility of actually putting it together like a series? Because like you were saying, there's so much there that, you know, I could easily see this being done something like Ken Burns style, where it's a, a, sure. a number of parts, you know, going all the way back to the beginning of the first recorded compositions with films to get it, even in getting into specific genres, like, you know, the yeah. horror genre, the Western, all of that. It's just a, a toe in an ocean when you're really looking at the grand scheme of things. Yeah, the idea of a series has come up a few times. It's something that we're exploring a little bit further right now, Eve, because, you know, we, we came out of this thing with way more footage. I suppose it's probably a precaution because the people on our team had never really put together a feature documentary before. So we had so much raw material that didn't make it into the final film. You know, everything from camera angles that were not used in the film to entire sequences that we shot, you know, with people on scoring stages in Hollywood and in London. That's pretty cool stuff. So we want to release that either as a raw additional material on our website, but we're actually, with some of that, we're exploring this idea of maybe breaking it into its own series of, you know, shorter documentaries that further explore the world of film music because it is so vast. Were there any composers who were on your wish list that you didn't necessarily get hold of? Or even composers who you wanted to explore who might no longer be with us, but there were no experts who you had access to? Oh, sure. There's a handful of great composers, and, you know, the one that became an issue for us, I'm very selfish to say that, given what happened, but James Horner passed away while we were in production on this. who don't know, he was the composer who worked with James Cameron on Avatar, on Titanic, and a lot of other projects as well, and was well known as one of the finest film composers, not just working today, but ever. He had kind of established his place in the film music world, and he was a pilot. I think it was in June of 2015 that his plane crashed. It, all the, the news outlets and everything, and I, I was working for one at the time, were trying to figure out if he was actually in the plane, and he, it turns out that he was and you know that was kind of early on in the process of a lot of the interviews we were shooting we actually had a couple requests out but you know those things happen in life and the, the thing that you have to do is try to make the best of what you have we did include a few examples of some scores that James Horner did and again kind of looking at what we were hoping to do in the film we wanted to pay a little bit of a tribute to his Horner's impact on the world but not necessarily make the movie about him also I do really like the scene where James Cameron is talking talking about the piano kind of a sketch. Mm -hmm. I, I thought that was a really nice little tribute to uh, to James Horner. I think that it was a cool little. Spot. That's something for anyone who's listening. That's in the end credits of our film. We could not find the best place to break apart from you know a lot of the industry talk. Here's how this works on a film. Here's how this works on a film, and then kind of break into a very specific example of one film. It's a really cool moment to have somebody like James Cameron, you know, who's arguably at least one of the most respected filmmakers of all time, who is recalling this moment with a film composer and it speaks not only to how important the composer is sometimes working with the director but specifically it i think it reveals a lot about composer's character too and you know we were happy to be able to include that somewhere so that leads into another question i wanted to ask you matt you managed to uh, assemble a, a really stellar cast of composers and directors and critics and so on in this how did you go about that were, were people keen on being involved yes and no i think everybody was pretty supportive of the idea that we had. So we didn't get anybody who said, absolutely not, there's no way. There wasn't really too many composers like that. What we did encounter a lot of was, this sounds like a really cool thing. We're busy working on some stuff now and for the next six months or for the next nine months. Why don't we circle back in next July? There was a lot of that stuff. And that's understandable. A lot of people aren't familiar, and we weren't at the start either, but a lot of people aren't familiar with the 
workflow for a lot of the composers, especially the ones that are really in demand. They have people lining up to say, hey, will you work on the music for this? Will you work on the music for this? You know, it's not little projects a lot of times. It's big name directors and actors and people who are trying to make really cool projects. And when you get to that level, there's a lot of opportunities like that to try out musical things. You just look at how many movies John Williams has done. They're not all Steven Spielberg. In fact, most of them are not Steven Spielberg, but he has done a lot of Steven Spielberg movies also, and then a lot of other great films in between. And we realize these composers are working on five or six movies a year for a couple months at a time, maybe three months if you're lucky. But you got to turn around this music pretty quickly. And then that time in between working on different projects, you really have to be able to let go and decompress and maybe even squeeze in a vacation for, you know, a week or so. Because as creative of an industry as film composing is, there are demands coming from a lot of people. And sometimes it's a creative demand, like we just need something that works. But there's a lot of pressure there, especially when you have a bunch of people in in studios who maybe aren't musical and they're saying, well, we just need something that works, but they don't really know exactly what they're fully talking about. You know, that happens. And that's something that composers do have to navigate. There's a um, theme pretty much running through the film of, of people working up against deadlines. And that's obviously part and parcel of, uh, of how it all works, isn't it? There's the one scene where the, the guy's talking about he, he hates going out into the street because you'll see the billboard for a movie with a release date. And then he says, oh, man, we haven't even finished the music yet. So <laughs> yeah. he, everywhere he goes, it's kind of a reminder of he's under the gun. obviously is stratified you know in the terms of the editing the directing and the musical composition but the one thing i really took away from your film is this idea that the score in itself is almost like a separate film that's being created simultaneously against the visual element there's a couple of times where people have said without the musical accompaniment our film wouldn't be what it is i mean like oh yeah it's incredible how sound can just basically set the stage for everything, sets the foundation for everything. We came from the Calgary Film Festival a couple weeks ago, and I was talking with the programmer there who said that they'll watch a movie with his family, with his kids, and his kids will say, I I don't like this movie, this part of the movie is really scary. And the easiest thing that a parent can do, and they said they realized this through trial and error, but the easiest thing a parent can do is just mute the TV until the scary scene ends. music, all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. it loses its emotional power. And there's an interesting thing that I think that extends to a lot of other genres, of course, than just something that's like a thriller movie or horror movie or something. I've always thought that aside from the story itself, music does provide the emotion of a story. And then way, way after that, you have all the other things. I even think the music's more important than an actor's performance a lot of times. Any bad element of a movie can ruin a movie. I was joking with Morris a couple of days ago. I was telling him about how somebody had on YouTube had geniusly taken the finale of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and they had uh, dubbed it up with the Benny Hill theme. <laughs> right. And suddenly it's just hilarious. You see her running down the road screaming with Leatherface running up behind her with yakety sacks. It, it's just brilliant the way that it, it suddenly is the complete opposite of what it was intended to be. And I mean, like, that's how you're saying, you know, like music can be so effective like that. And I think that's an interesting thing because we know what that music sounds like and we know 
what the tone of a horror movie is. So it's easy for us to bring up examples of things like that that clearly don't seem to fit. And it is interesting the way that the picture takes on a new meaning because of something we're hearing. And it doesn't seem to work the other way. You know, you can have really scary music and even if you have some goofy children's cartoon program over the scary music, it still is the music that's impressing itself on the picture. It seems to always be the music that's providing that emotional character. And a lot of composers are aware of that technique and they've used that in film to try to achieve certain things. Good example was in The Passion of the Christ a few years ago. Composer John Debney talked about doing the music for a particularly gruesome, bloody scene. And he went in there saying, this needs to be soothing, beautiful music that will hold people through these horrible, ugly images. You know, like these these, these really intense things that make you want to not watch any more of the film. But the music does kind of have the power to push through certain things like that or, you know, to provide a really different kind of a statement in a movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Matt, that sort of leads me to something I was discussing with Tim and Bernie last night. I know that there's some conventional wisdom that says that a good score is supposed to be unobtrusive, enhance the narrative without getting in the way of the narrative, but in some ways also appears to contradict what your movie seems to celebrate and the film composers whose music is often, as Tim went and said, it's its own film or its own part in the film. Just as your personal philosophy, do you think, should the audience be walking out of the movie humming the music or should the music just be there to set the tone and be completely unmemorable after after you've walked out of the film. We've entered this era of people want their movies to be really gritty and realistic. So I, I think it's scared a lot of directors into doing things that aren't maybe as musical in their film scores. And they've encouraged their composers to maybe not go out too far on a limb with some musical theme. That I think is kind of unfortunate. I do think that a powerful, tuneful score can provide something that really enhances the movie and makes it much more memorable for a long time after that sometimes. It doesn't really work the other way though. I don't think you see movies that have those great tunes and maybe it's a mediocre movie. I don't think you ruin the movie by having that. I think you make it at least a little bit better. I would say I'm a pretty strong supporter of that idea of allowing a composer to make a statement in a score because it moves people. Ultimately, when you're creating a film as director, you want your film to move people and for people to remember and for people to enjoy the ride. And those are all things that music can't do at all, but it can do a lot of those. And it can certainly help you out on a lot of different things like that if your your movie is lacking. Have you ever watched a film and thought, no, this music is really leading me too obviously to a place? Uh-huh. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, that, that ha I won't I won't give you specific examples of that, but I, I can think of... <laughs> you can I, tell it us happens a lot in TV. It, it happens a lot in TV where you can see an episode and, you know, something is happening in the story. And it either feels really cliche, you know, like I've seen this exact scene play out a million times and this over-the-top romantic harp music that it doesn't provide anything new. It's telling me what I already put together because I've already seen this type of a scene before. It doesn't provide anything new. And sometimes it's lathered on so heavily that, yeah, I mean, I think it can rub an audience in the wrong way. There was a scene in a more recent show that typically has really good music, but there was a scene just a few months ago that I remember watching and the music swelled in the middle of the scene and it was just so over the top. I laughed out loud and was just kind of amazed that that slipped through when otherwise it's such a really well-told story. It was just a little bit too much and the story didn't support that. So it is an art form that ties into you know the rest of the storytelling as well. Sometimes they become devices that people rely on, I think, too much. You know, like, for example, in the 80s. It was one of the cheapest tools in B horror movies, you know, the jump scare. <laughs>
with the soundtrack. Back in the 70s and 80s, that was really effective. But now, whenever you're watching horror films and you know that that soundtrack kicks in, it's like, okay, here comes a jump scare. I mean, it's so choreographed and it's been so relied on in, in so many instances of film. You know, I think that good composers know when to jump in and jump out and not rely on things too heavily or, or rely on the same devices again and again and again because it almost becomes like predictable. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're a composer, let's say you're working on some new thriller movie that's coming out, ultimately, you know, the, the people who hire you for the job, they may be willing to cut you loose and go go do musically, it fully 100% trust you. But I would say probably more often than not, they're not going to do that. And they'll say, you know, they want to hear your first version of something. And then they'll say, well, it sounds too fast or it sounds too angry or it sounds too sad. They'll give a composer some direction like that. And not to say that that's inaccurate. I mean, some of the, the greatest scores of all time have been collaborations between director and a composer. A lot of John Williams, Steven Spielberg, the great work there is because they can get on the same wavelength in talking about what will help the story. think you do have a lot of filmmakers now, especially on movies that maybe aren't the most original idea. And they say, hey, this worked really well in that movie that came out last year. Can you do the same thing? It's a little bit demoralizing for a composer to be told, hey, I really like what, what that composer did. Can you just do the same thing? Make it a little different, sure, but we want the same thing. There's not much of a challenge in that. You're copying, you're kind of tracing more than you're actually writing anything or drawing anything or painting anything thing musically. So I think a lot of composers are frustrated by that. Now that said, there are a lot of composers that will take that inspiration and transform it into something that's almost completely theirs. It doesn't even resemble the original idea of it. But you typically have to be working with the right people who can appreciate that and who don't get locked into, oh, well, I really want to hear Lux Eterna from Requiem for a Dream. You know, it's you can only use that music so many times and have it keep its effect in society and and i think sometimes filmmakers get that and sometimes they don't but composers will always if left alone they will always be creating something original and trying to push the limits of what we can do emotionally with music well it's funny because you mentioned lux eterna i forget the actual term now whenever some films actually use a sub score before the the film has actually been scored they, they'll put in a uh, substitute score to go along with the film but i sure. know or for trailers and I know Lux Eterna has been used so many times. It just seems like you were saying earlier about how sound can affect visuals so strikingly. And it's just that certain Kronos Quartet, it's just that that track is just again and again and again used in, in so many different ways, but kind of for that same dramatic effect. Yeah, in a film, it's typically called a temp score or a That's temp, track. The temp um, track. And yeah, it, composers have very mixed feelings. I understand both sides. The director in the studio wants to be able to communicate the right general ballpark feel of what music should do. However, once you hear something, you know, music is unlike a lot of other art forms. Once you hear it, it's kind of hard to unhear it if you're a composer. You know, you pick up on all of the emotion, all of the, the texture that is in a piece of music like that that's being used. You know, it's hard to unhear that. A lot of composers actually have strategies on trying to combat that. If someone says, okay, here's a copy of the movie. You've never seen it before. We already went and put in some temp tracks so that you have an idea of what kind of music we're looking for. Composers hate that. We interviewed composers who talk about watching a movie on mute and writing their own music through a movie on mute and then going through and watching the actual thing and hearing the temp music that was put in. And, and then they can try to navigate that a little bit better because they have some place that they originally started from that they can kind of build on musically. It's easy to go back to that. But yeah, once you hear something, it's hard to unhear. And that's why you have a lot of a lot of directors who get married to the idea of certain pieces of music in certain scenes and sometimes they will
will say to a composer, look, it's great that you're doing something original here, but I don't want anything original here. I want what I thought sounded really good when we put in this music from this movie last year. So if you can do something that is just like that, that's what I want. And, you know, that can be a little frustrating. Take it back to the film. There's the one scene that I like with Gary Marshall where he's sitting there and they're watching the film and he's saying, yeah, this is where we'll put the music in. And that kind of goes to what you were saying. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a spotting session, which is the first time that a director and a composer watch a film together. That's important because you can watch a film on your own all you want, but really, ideally, you want, you know, the director wants to be there with the composer to guide. A good example is this idea of foreshadowing, and you have it a lot in script for a film or for a TV show, but it happens a lot in music. Director might say, I thought it would be really cool if we don't see Darth Vader here at all, but if we just have a few notes dun 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 You know, and that is enough. You don't even have to see any of uh, Darth Vader, any stormtroopers or anything like that. You know, though, that they're looming over that scene somehow. Maybe you're in enemy territory, you know, when they play that music or something like that. But it adds something to the story, a certain kind of depth. Your composer understands that from the start. It can make the film way better. the section of the film fairly early on where Leonard Moulton mentions that there was never such a thing as a silent film. There was never silence. There was always some sort of accompaniment, be it an organ player or mm-hmm. an orchestra live in the theatre. I just wanted to convey like a personal story before I ask the question. About 20 years ago, they started playing silent films here in Melbourne in the Botanical Gardens during summer, and that ran for a couple of years before they went to more contemporary sort of conventional films. But the first mm-hmm. year or two they would run all these old classic silent films and I remember going one time to seeing a double feature of The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary and I think Nosferatu and they had an organ player who was obviously either having a bit of a joke or he wasn't really looking at what it was that he was playing so you'd get the scary moments in the film where he'd be playing... And then you'd get the, mm-hmm. the the lightly humorous moments where he'd be playing... everyone completely out of the moment. That comes back to what you were talking about before and how the music can really set the mood, or in this case, take us out of the mood. But what I wanted to ask oh, you yeah. in regards to these early films, more in terms of your research, if you found out anything, once talkies had come in, I did not know that the Max Steiner's score for King Kong was the first orchestral score. find out whether music was used in those early talkies pretty much for the same reason that it was used in the silent films before they sort of became I guess a whole lot more sophisticated a lot more clever with it later on was it just used to cover up for the fact that there were silent bits in the film where there was no dialogue or was the thinking the way how it is now that we can genuinely use this in clever ways to establish right, right. this mood of the film does that make sense yeah I think so it was a pretty big revelation that took a, a while when they started realizing that music could serve an emotional function and not just let's cover up some noise not just a technical function almost you know not just to make you a little more comfortable in the uh, the so- movie palace that you were going to. Yeah, I mean, if you're just sitting in there and there's no audio really coming from the screen, you know, someone playing a piano adds a good amount of atmosphere. You know, it kind of makes sense the thinking that there might have been, let's have somebody there just to make it a nicer overall experience for the people that come in here. But you're right in that it wasn't, from the start at least, it wasn't clear
clear that the style of music could affect the way that the audience interpreted the story. And that was a big thing because, you know, there's this whole idea that's heavily studied about diegetic music and, you know, which is basically music that the characters in the story hear. They go into a bar or a restaurant and there's music playing. You know, we kind of interpret a scene like that as, oh, the characters can hear the music. But if they're standing out in the middle of the street professing their love to each other, the music you're hearing there is clearly not playing in the middle of the street. It's weird because we don't really think about it. We just kind of automatically, our brain makes a decision. And to tell you the truth, I'm not sure where that line exactly is. And, and a lot of scientists aren't really either. It's kind of a mystery why we interpret certain things like that as providing support for the story information that we're seeing versus giving us technical information. Um, so it is kind of a weird thing. And I think it probably came about through years and years of experimentation with different things. You know, you have a lot of local theaters that would start to say, maybe let's play some really upbeat music while this uh, silent film is playing. And then, you know, when the love of his life runs away, can play much slower music and it'll be a little bit sadder. And I think it probably started like that. Just a couple small steps in that direction before you really got to the point where now you see a lot of films that are the whole idea of a jump scare. A jump scare is an editing maneuver, really. That's what it is. But the fact that we think about that with music shows how far we've taken that concept of what music can provide. You know, now, anytime you have a jump scare, there has to be some sound with it. Otherwise, it's not really that effective. So you need the music to go, boom, you know, all of a sudden. That's something that I think they didn't really get back in the day. But it started to come about because of some small little experimentations. And then eventually, when a studio realized let's record a whole orchestra with this film and put it out and people can hear the actual music that is supposed to accompany the film and King Kong was scary as a result of that. I was thinking in particular in terms of actually animation because when you look at the early Warner Brothers stuff, Carl Stalling, everything from footsteps to just things that you see on the screen, how they were enhanced through an actual composition, where the composition was actually part of the sound effects. Mm -hmm. Like that's incredible how they were able to do that. And I think they still do that with Pixar and Disney, how they'll actually incorporate the effects of what the characters are doing right into the score itself. And I think that's a really, really amazing thing. It is. There's a term for that and it's called Mickey Mousing. The start of all of that was you saw in a lot of the early, not just Mickey Mouse, but a lot of the Disney cartoons and some of the other the Looney Tunes, obviously, was a great example of it. But there are some early cartoons that employed that a lot. Lot. And you're right. You know, every step up the stairs was, you know, dun, 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 dun. Everything had some musical sound effect to it. You saw it a little bit. If you go back and you watch movies from the 1940s, uh, 1950s, you hear a little bit of that in the scores that went with those. You know, if a character goes up the stairs, you'll kind of hear some of that music rising in tone. And it's clearly supposed to kind of accompany the idea of someone going up on the screen. In cartoons, it was a lot easier because you're not limited by reality. So a lot of the fast movements could be scored with different things. And it was interesting. I mean, what Carl Stalling did on those Looney Tunes, the Bugs Bunny cartoons and some of the Roadrunner cartoons and, and Wiley Coyote are some of the best for this. But they're not only doing that in scoring however many minute long cartoon, but they're also quoting these great pieces of classical music from the past. Yeah, Raymond Scott's Powerhouse. times again and again that yep you know john powell the film composer talked to us at length about how he really looked to carl stalling for inspiration of a lot of these things and he was always impressed at how quickly that orchestra could start and stop they were so precise and there could be lots of action playing this great classical piece of music at just an unbelievable tempo just it's going so fast and then the character slams into a wall or something and every
everything just stops. Everybody in the room that was playing that immediately stops. That seems like it wouldn't be as big of a thing because, you know, now a lot of people have earpieces to keep them all on the same page and, and, you know, all of that. But that was really difficult back in the day. Everyone was reading sheet music at the same time that they were trying to look at a conductor. You know, usually everyone would maybe end within the same second or so, but they wouldn't all end at the same time. And now we've kind of reached this point where everyone can be so synchronized that it can be really, really precise. But Carl Stalling was one of those guys that really mastered that art form early on. And he was doing really interesting, kind of aggressive, fast things with orchestras that nobody else was even even experimenting with. Probably a lot of modern movies still draw inspiration from that. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there a, a scene in the film where actually one of the composers says that he doesn't like it when everything all just kind of stops at the same time that he likes when everyone kind of stops at their own kind of moment there's that dissonance yeah i think that point is probably a little bit more about all of the different instruments that are providing a certain texture and they kind of combine in the air we ran into this issue when we were trying to do our original score for the film and it's only a few pieces of music but you know we were trying to figure out what kind of orchestra do we need access to to be able to put together some pieces of music we ended up you know actually using a whole kind of medium-sized orchestra for the pieces of music that we needed but we had this thought of can we just have one violinist play the same thing three times you know we're in the world of everything's digital it seems like you could just put that on three different tracks and it would sound like three different people playing violins in the same room at the same time the reality is the way that sound engineers will tell you this but music engineers the sound of those instruments they echo off of each other in the air and then they enter the microphone. So you end up with this thing that you can kind of digitally do some things to try to kind of cheat the system. But when it comes to having a big orchestra playing together, there's not really a digital way to replicate that still. It sounds like we're a ways away from that also. I mean, I'm sure we'll eventually get there, but not yet. It's kind of like a fingerprint. Yeah, yeah. If you can average out a million different fingerprints, it's probably not going to match any one person's fingerprints very well. Sorry, Matt, I'd like to go back to the genesis of your film, sure. uh, if I may. You, um, We talked about it briefly earlier, and, and you mentioned that there are a certain sort of set of people who enjoy film scores and listening to film scores. I know that you come from a background in TV news and journalism, so mm-hmm. I, I was curious, are you one of those people who enjoys film scores, or was it more the journalist in you thinking, this is an interesting subject, I'd kind of like to pursue this and, and see where that goes? And also, as a sort of follow-up question to that, Did you find stepping from journalism into documentary making, was that an easy thing to do? Did it kind of make sense for you to go in that direction? Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was weird. And it took me a while to even realize that it's a lot of the same tools that you use as both a journalist that's covering a story, you know, usually presenting it for its news value and being a documentarian, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. It's a lot of the same skills, but it's a kind of a completely different end result. I'm sure a lot of my experience helped me, but I actually kind of threw away the whole idea of that and tried to approach just from the perspective of what do I need to do to make a documentary that is like other documentaries I've seen in the past. You know, using what I know as a documentary viewer, what do I need to do to make something that is good? Because I watch a lot of documentaries and I I always have. I, I really enjoy them, especially a really powerful documentary is an amazing thing. So I I don't think that it was something I probably consciously thought of, but it is something there where, you know, obviously a lot of the setting up 
interviews and research uh, and a lot of the even shooting and editing because I, I've worked in television news. A lot of that was familiar, but kind of the end format of that all was something where I tried to make sure that I wasn't just copying something else, but I was trying to think through a little bit about why it's all coming together in a certain way and try to make something of it there, not necessarily something that's real newsy. Yeah, well, I think you succeeded. I don't think it is. Uh, it's, Thank it's, you. It's not too newsy at all. <laughs> As I asked, are you the kind of person who was sort of passionate about film scores anyway? Is that yeah. what led you to do this? Yeah. You know what it was? It was featurettes that you see on DVDs and Blu-rays. And I remember watching a lot of those. You know, they're only like a minute and a half. It's kind of disappointing. They give you a little taste of something and then that's all you get. But it'll be something showing Hans Zimmer working behind the scenes on something. There's a really cool thing there, but typically what you would get is half of some track of music that's used as kind of a score underneath that little segment. And you get to see some video of somebody plucking at a guitar or playing a few notes on a keyboard or whatever, and then it's over. It's almost like a commercial, you know, in that it's so yeah. compact that it's clearly being produced just so that it's an extra thing that people can watch. They aren't respecting yeah, the fact that people might actually want to watch it for an hour, if you could. So I, I think that was probably the biggest difference. I always really like those. Those little featurettes are such a tease because <laughs> you don't ever really find out what the rest of the process is like, you know? And, and I think until we started actually doing some pretty heavy research into this, we weren't even completely sure when a film composer typically starts working on the music for something, if that happened as soon as they get off the phone with a director that says, hey, I have an idea, I'm going to shoot a movie next year. Or if it's a director that says, hey, I just shot a movie and I need someone to start composing the music for it tomorrow. And here's the copy of the movie. You know, anywhere in that process, you can have a film composer start. And typically there is a certain path that they follow to create that music. It's kind of a mystery. We wanted to show a little bit of the things that are, are in between the point where you need music and then the point where it's shown to the world. There's a lot of really special things that happen, even on a bad movie, some really amazing things that happen that, uh, you know, a lot of directors were telling us that their wives hate being when they're in production on a film, but they'll never miss a scoring session because it's such a magical room to be in and just, you know, have all those musicians playing at once and this really powerful music and just to kind of feel those sound waves kind of echoing, bouncing off your chest. That's a really, a really cool thing. You know, we hope to capture a little bit of that. I think you have. I think you've done a good job with it, man. Thank you. access to Abbey Road, Air Studios, and I'm presenting the Warner Brothers Burbank sound recording stages. How hard was it for you as, a, and I say you, I mean, like as a film crew to work around the orchestra? Oh, yeah. It was scary. <laughs> I mean, how did you get what you wanted without getting in their way? That was the concern. You know, we, we went in there and there's a hundred people playing music at the same time and they got to squeeze a lot of work into, I don't know, maybe two days times six hours of work typically, or maybe seven hours, maybe eight hours max. It's pretty limited day and it's expensive. I mean, this is one of those things that money can help provide for something. You have a lot of really high level talent that is in that room on a film score because there's a big time crunch, you know, and they want to make sure that every person in there is a professional. So enter our team of people that have never made a movie before, and it's a little bit nerve-wracking, because as soon as anybody starts playing something, we all would just freeze. It, there's wooden floors in there, but it's an older room. All of those places are. So even like a floor creak, you know, we were nervous because there's all these microphones, and the last thing we want is for someone to say, you guys just ruined this entire thing. This just cost <laughs> us a hundred grand, and now we have to come in another day and shoot with 
record with, you know, another orchestra. And there's a lot of buildup to get to that point. I think our secret was let's move as quickly as we can when they're not recording. And then as soon as that recording light goes on, we're frozen in place wherever we are. And luckily, we didn't upset anybody too much. Somehow we got away with it. Were you working like as a skeleton crew when you were with the orchestral recording studios? Just to give you an idea, we had our own microphones that we tried to set up in kind of strategic places, but also, you know, we had three or four people usually. In one of them, we had more than that, but usually three or four people that all had cameras and tripods, and that was it. Uh, Pretty lightweight stuff, but enough where we could quickly pick up the sticks, as we call them, on the tripod, walk over another 25 feet in between recording different cues that they're, they're recording, and quickly line up another shot before they start again. I don't know. It required a little bit of planning to make sure that we were getting what we needed to get, but as long as we didn't upset anybody, we were pretty much able to hang around there. Now that said, at Abbey Road for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, nobody told us that Chris Martin and Simon Pegg would be showing up on the day that we were there and that they do not like cameras around. (laughs) So we were told by the people there that uh, we had 22 minutes or something to shoot our video and then that was it. So actually we used, in the movie, we used every single shot that we took with our cameras ended up in that sequence. There wasn't a wasted shot anywhere in there we got exactly what we needed and nothing more so you fell victim to uh, actors tantrums yeah right right <laughs> the star power makes you remember how little you are when, when <laughs> you know somebody like that is like i don't like cameras and then there's 12 people that are all staring at you right. trying to get you out of the room so before we wrap this up not to say that any of them are better or worse I just want to put this out there to our guests. Two of your favorite scorers and a favorite composer. Um, Sure. I really like Lawrence of Arabia. probably my favorite kind of traditional score. I would say more recently, I mean, this is still kind of in recent memory, but I think The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises both were really kind of bold pushes into the hybrid of orchestral and electronic. That was a really cool thing that now like the last Mad Max movies kind of picked up on. And I think that'll be something that continues. That's probably the future is seeing a lot of that orchestra meets electronic synth sounds. That's probably where we're headed, at least for the next 10 years or so, I would guess. And then uh, favorite composer, I, the easy answer is Hans Zimmer. That's how I've answered in the past. I'll also say that I think Danny Elfman is a really, I mean, it's hard to say he's underrated because he's done so many great things, but he's kind of a chameleon in that he can do so many different sounds really, really well. It's kind of inspiring to see a guy who came from a band, you know, like a punk band background, being able to achieve all kinds of different really elaborate, you know, styles like that. There's a really kind of a a cool thing in the way that he puts music together. So I'd probably say Hans and Danny both. Okay, cool. I'm going to go with for for scores, I would say the, the, the first Alien film Jerry Goldsmith. Mm -hmm. I love that score. Wang Chung to live and die in L.A.
Oh yeah, that's an amazing Fantastic. Story. Yeah. And I would say enjoying my Canadian patriotism, I'm going to go with Howard Shore. Oh yeah. Howard Shore, he's my man because he covered all the David Cronenberg films. Well, mm-hmm. a, lar- a, lar- a large part of them, and he went on to do bigger and better things. Plus, he started his pedigree playing and starting uh, hosting the Saturday Night Live band. That's right. I, I forgot yeah. about that. That's true, yeah. though. Yeah, he's lived a very interesting musical life. Oh yeah, yeah, Bernie. Um, I probably this is kind of my age and nostalgia creeping in a little bit, but John Williams. pick a specific score but um yeah I, I, i'll just say john williams <laughs> there's so many great ones pick, pick yeah, any of them the, yeah 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 Morris? Yep. I remember when I was growing up, we had a ton of scores. My sister collected a bunch of them. And so probably in our record collection, there were two that I played a lot. There was the Miklos Roja score for Ben-Hur, which I really, really adored. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was really excited, Matt, to see that you included specific mention of Jerry Goldsmith's score for Planet of the Apes in the film. I was like about four or five years old when I first heard the score for that, but it was probably like another five or six years before I got to see the film, so I knew the music intimately, and I liked the combination of unusual instrumentation. I think there's like the chasing of Charlton Heston, there's like an effect in the background, it sounds like a percussion or milk bottles or something like that. I, I, can't, <laughs> yeah, quite, yeah. I can't work out what, what that actually is, but the dissonance was not something I was you know familiar with from other film scores, so yeah, look, that is definitely a favourite film score. Planet of the Apes could go to so many. I mean, Max Steiner's score for Casablanca is, mm-hmm. is just absolutely king for me. But probably the last one I'll mention is one that I know the three of us all absolutely adore, and that's from the uh, Italian prog rock group Goblin. They wrote of the course. score for all the Dario Argento films. And I, I saw, I think as a 13-year-old, I got to see the film Deep Red. like another 30 years I think after that uh, but for some reason the music from Deep Red was in my head for 30 years it never left it when I saw the film it was exactly as I remembered and how many films can you say that you've watched and even for a memorable score that you'd remember it that many years later after not having seen it for that many years so yeah Deep Red yeah. is definitely a favourite yeah that's a great answer that's the first time I've heard someone give that answer but that's a good one yeah I hadn't even thought about that in a little while I'll just pull back the curtain a little bit Matt so the three of us have been having conversations you know, before we got to speak to you and the one thing that the three of us sort of thought was man why didn't he talk about Goblin we're all, big, <laughs> all, all huge fans so maybe next time make a documentary just on them yeah well, that's, that would be a fascinating documentary maybe I'll give it another couple years and if no one else makes this one maybe we'll do it too yes now here's one, here's one thing that I wanted to put out there how many filmmakers have you come across that were actually filmmakers slash composers because I'm thinking in particular of John Carpenter. Uh huh.
Yeah, I mean, he's he's a great example that Clint Eastwood has done a little bit also. There aren't that many, but John Carpenter, great one of somebody that does music and is obviously making a film also. Yeah, there are an interesting number of people who are split time between being a composer and doing something else also. That's a pretty, I'm trying to think of the name. I can't remember the guy's name, but on the X-Men movies, he's the editor of the picture is also a composer. And oh, wow. I, for some reason, I'm it's completely escaping me. If it comes back to me, I'll, uh, I'll let you know. That's a really cool way that I think it shows that music connects with the rest of the picture. And really, they're reliant on each other. You film score, it might be a great piece of music by itself, but when you combine that with the picture, it's the most powerful form of expression that our species, our human beings, have ever come up with. You know, there's a reason that billions of people want to go to movies. You know, they that's what they do in, in their, when they have time, they want to go experience these collaborative art forms. And I do think that the most influential part of almost every movie, I'll even go so far as to say, is the music. Look, thank you so much, Matt, for uh, your time and your insight into your film and into score composition in general. So our listeners out there, they if they haven't seen it and they're thinking, by golly, by gosh, that's something that we need to check out. How can they do it? Has the film had its theatrical run? Yeah, we're available in North America. It happened last month or so and have been really lucky, actually. We've been doing pretty well on the charts on iTunes. So we're on iTunes, Amazon. I'm told that we are in Australia now and that we, on iTunes at least, and that we are in South Korea very soon. I think we're doing a couple film festivals there. And then in a handful of other countries, we're available. So we're trying to uh, keep our website updated, uh, I- score-movie.com. Because it's streaming only, Matt. Is there any plans for a DVD or Blu-ray release? Yeah, in North America, we actually did a whole theatrical run. And then we're digital, obviously, also VOD, so cable systems yeah. and all of that stuff. And then uh, we are on Blu-ray and DVD as well. Um, oh, okay. Excellent. In, uh, I think this is all things that I never would have known anything about a year ago, but all of these different territories that uh, around the world, it's a really cool thing to dive into, but it gets complicated fast. We are on DVD and Blu-ray in Germany, Austria, Spain. I don't know. I half dozen other countries as well so as would be appropriate have you negotiated to get even brief theatrical runs outside of north america uh we're working on it right now (laughs) that's the last piece of something especially in the uk i know we just premiered in germany at the hamburg film festival and i think we have a short theatrical run in germany in some different cities and then i think we've done that in japan also in a handful of cities we've been playing in theaters for a couple months so yeah it's kind of it's a weird world and it's way more complicated than I ever thought it it was but it's been really cool to be on this ride because something that would have been a whole separate conversation unto itself would have been about the power of music in a theatre as opposed to just watching at home in your lounge room so uh, I think it's definitely this film of any film really does deserve to be seen on the big screen if nothing else just to enhance the point about how oh yeah and we mixed it all in 5.1 so if you have a, a surround sound system at home you'll at least be able to hear it on that sure all right and can the, the listeners find you if they want to get in contact you and get ask you questions on you on facebook or twitter or any other yeah twitter is the best and it's at matt schrader m-a-t-t s is in sam c-h-r-a-d-e-r fantastic Thank you so much. We're really, really grateful that you've taken the time Thank to uh, speak much, to us Matt. today, Matt. We really appreciate it. Yeah, guys. I'm glad. I'm so glad that you reached out. Much appreciated. All right. We're Thank you take, very much. We're going to take a quick break now, and then the three of us will be back to uh, talk about what's going to be on next month's episode of See Here. You're listening to See Here Podcast, episode 45.
Once again, many thanks to Matt Schrader for giving us his time so generously. We spoke for a little over an hour. By the time I've edited this, I'm not quite sure whether it'll quite be at an hour. It might be 45 minutes or 50 minutes, but he spoke to us for over an hour. So once again, Matt, thank you so very much for giving See Here your time. And we all highly recommend that you search the film out. It is on iTunes, certainly in Australia. So hopefully it is in other parts of the world. Certainly go check iTunes out. If it's not there yet, it will be before too long. But if you have the good fortune to find that there's a big screen showing of it in your area, go see it on the big screen because really music is so much a part of the big screen experience. So it'll be quite apropos for you to be able to see this in a cinema if it is at all available and if you get the chance. So episode 46, which will be in November. Bernie, it is your choice. Now, we originally mentioned this at the end of episode 44 because we weren't sure that we were going to get this interview in for uh, October. But we'll let you announce what is next month's film of choice it's technically not my choice i think it this is a listener choice isn't it oh, oh that's right sorry so it is yeah yeah okay but the, the confusion arises from the fact that lily sock monkey has chosen the film that we're going to watch by some strange twist of fates I happen to be married to Lily Sockmonkey. She has chosen for us to discuss next month Water Hills Streets of Fire. What, 85? I can dream about you <laughs> if I can't hold you tonight. There'll be plenty more of that next month. So does, that, um, so does yeah. that mean we'll all be singing on next month's show? Oh, don't, don't you start that again, Morris. <laughs> I'll be starting that every month until I get a strike rate. It's never going to happen. We're going to be d- doing this little dance to the grave, Morris, because uh, it's, it's never going to happen. i got two words for you. Nowhere fast. Yep. There you go. What Tim <laughs> I'm, said. I'm going to be having words with Lily Sock Monkey on the sly and get her to encourage you to do it. Okay. And, well, I'm, I'm not making any promises, but I'm going to see if I can um, maybe persuade her to join us at least for a little bit next month. She's not keen. She's a little shy, but uh, maybe I can get just to give a little introduction as to why she uh, chose the film or, or something along those lines but uh, you'll have to wait and see for next month just tell her there's nothing to be shy about it it's just you Tim myself and our 10,000 listeners no problem at all and I was going to say you're, you're, you're putting a couple of extra zeros on there <laughs> doesn't uh, matter anyway because we do it for the love we do so, right. we do it for the love of yeah. our 10,000 listeners not, not for the numbers right. <laughs> so next month Streets of Fire Walter Hill so we'll be talking a lot about that and no doubt we might talk a little bit about the Walter Hill back catalogue because I'm pretty sure we're all fans of the great man's work. Yeah, yeah, I think we might delve into that a little. Mm -hmm. Um, And there there will be discussion of Willem Dafoe in Leather Waders as well. (laughs) Oh, behave. Thanks very much, guys. It's been a pleasure as always. And this was our first show as a trio in three months, I think. So, um, no. Good Lord. Welcome welcome back. It's been a long, crazy summer. Well, in your part of the world, in this part of the world, it's been a long, crazy winter. Oh, sure, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's so, been crazy either way. A crazy time. Yeah. November, Streets of Fire, Lily Sock Monkey making her podcast debut. It'll be wonderful. Maybe, so, maybe. <laughs> so until then, have a, a wonderful time, listen to some great music, watch some great music, pay attention to the scores. It's what it's all about. And uh, we'll see you next month on See Here. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.